So I want to start off this morning by dropping some science on you, all right? Scientific fact number one, did you know, it is humanly impossible to say the letter P without separating your lips. Try it. (laughs) It can't be done. Scientific fact, and you look ridiculous trying, Sam. Scientific fact number two, it is humanly impossible to go on a family vacation with my parents for a week and not talk about politics. Fact. I tried it. We just got back from a vacation with my extended family, and we vowed that we wouldn't talk about politics. But you know what? It's scientifically impossible not to. Because it can't be done. It turns out anything can be political. I mean, we're sitting there on the beach, and and we're talking about the beautiful weather, and suddenly we're discussing climate change. We're sitting there talking about our favorite shows on Netflix, and suddenly the conversation shifts to the Me Too movement. We're talking about the beautiful boats that are coming into shore and suddenly the conversation has shifted to the merits of trying to build a border wall of smugglers can just come in by sea. Anything can turn political. How does it, I mean, how does it happen? How do we in two minutes go from like this inane, pleasant conversation about the weather to intense dialogue about, you know, these complicated issues of gender and sexuality and power and immigration and drug enforcement and environmentalism? On our vacation. (laughs) It turns out anything and everything can be political. And right now in our culture, in our country, everything is. Right? The truth is our vacation went great. And none of it went too far south on us in any of these conversations. We are learning as a family, even though we have some pretty different views on some of these issues, that we can dialogue, we can talk, we can learn from one another slowly but surely. And one of the things we realized in our conversation was that for so many of these issues that are tearing us up as a nation, about politics at least, many of them boil down to a discussion of rights. Who has the right to do what? To say what? It makes sense, though, that rights are at the center of our divisions because rights are at the center of our story as a nation. We are a nation founded on the principle of rights. Our nation started off as these 13 little colonies who would come to the new world to find a new life and new freedom and new liberties. And these 13 colonies gathered together and they sent these delegates. And in 1787, they wrote a constitution. The preamble to that constitution read this way. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union... And then this first draft was sent out to the 13 states in order to create a more perfect union. And you know what it met with? Tons of controversy. (laughs) Immediately there was division. Immediately there were two separate parties that formed. The Federalists who wanted to ratify this new constitution and the Anti-Federalists who didn't want to ratify this new constitution because they they thought that it did not go far enough in ensuring the rights of the individual, the rights of the states. In fact, key states said they wouldn't sign if there wasn't another document drafted. So they drafted another document. Does anyone know what it's called? The Bill of Rights. Exactly. It's full of these amendments that guarantee the rights to things like free speech and freedom of religion and the right to bear arms and the right to assemble and the right to do all these different things. It's a series of rights. Our nation is founded on the principle that all people are created equal, born with the same unalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And those unalienable rights that are at the very foundation of who we are as a nation, they're one of our greatest assets. They're one of the greatest pieces of who we are. And they're one of our greatest challenges. Many of those amendments, many of those rights that were written over 200 years ago, they are still front page news today, right? As we fight over reproductive rights versus the right to life. 
the right to marry? Who has the right to come into our country? What does it mean to have the right to bear arms? I'm not taking sides here. I'm just reading the headlines, (laughs) right? So much of what we're fighting about today, when you really look at it, boils down to an interpretation of our rights. In fact, some would argue that these unalienable, unalienable, I said that like 17 times today, (laughs) unalienable rights on which our nation was founded, these principles that were supposed to bring us to a more perfect union, maybe are undoing if we can't find a way to keep our rights from dividing us as a nation and as families and as the church. The church in America is just as divided as the rest of the country. And unfortunately, that's making headlines too. But division is not new to the church. The apostle Paul writing in his letters to the church in Corinth, addresses this issue of rights and division. Even then, at the earliest days of its infancy, the church was fragmented. The church had begun to divide. And Paul wrote these words, 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I'm sure some of you are saying, well, that doesn't sound that political. Maybe we'll get through this morning. Just wait. (laughs) I think what Paul is saying here is if you're in Christ, you have a new story and it's very different than the stories of this world. We are God's ambassadors of reconciliation. Christ has reconciled us to himself, which is glorious and wonderful and amazing. And Christ has now given us That ministry of reconciliation, which is glorious and wonderful and terrifying and overwhelming. In a world full of trolls, we're called to be bridge builders. In a country that's being torn apart by our politics, we are called to be ambassadors of reconciliation. And how on earth do we even do that? Well, that's what we want to spend our time on today. And today, we're not going to talk about the issues themselves for the most part. We're not going to answer whether or not we should legalize marijuana or what it means to have the right to bear arms or any of those sorts of issues. Instead, today, what we want to do is look at how we can become a community that's known for respectful and productive conversations in a world that is addicted to outrage. We're going to talk about approaches to bring healthy conversations and discussions to these topics and these issues that have been so divisive in our culture and even in our churches. So the first is this. There's a place to write this in your notes. First, we have to talk. Reconciliation can only happen if we're willing to actually talk about these things with people who hold our views, but way more importantly, to talk about it with people who don't hold our views. I think naturally, though, our natural human tendency, maybe for self-preservation, is to do what our family has done for decades, which is just avoid talking about politics altogether. But while that avoids conflict, it doesn't actually create reconciliation, just avoidance. But talking about it is hard. It's hard work. How do we have those difficult conversations that are so critical? One of the books we've recommended during the series is called Difficult Conversations. And I want to, How to Discuss What Matters Most by Douglas Stone. And in the book, he agrees that these sorts of conversations, as critical as they are, are also really difficult. He writes these words. We need advice that's more powerful than be diplomatic or, or try to stay positive. The problems 
run deeper than that. So must the answers. Stone, in, in this book, provides us with these practical tools and these skills to try to, to attempt to move from, you know, avoiders at best to trolls at worst, to move from that sort of a paradigm to actually engaging with others who think differently than us in dialogue, not simply dialogue with people who already believe what we believe, but with people who believe different things. And while I don't know anything about Stone's faith or if he's a Christian or any of those sorts of things, there's a lot of ways in which he agrees with the Apostle Paul on the how-tos of us becoming effective reconcilers. Stone says that in order to bring health to these difficult conversations, we have to seek to know our own story. We have to seek to know our own story. Our own story matters. What we bring to the conversations matter, both good and bad. He writes it this way. Our stories don't come out of nowhere. They aren't random. Our stories are built in often unconscious but systematic ways. Get curious about what you don't know about yourself. This may sound like an odd thing to worry about. After all, you're with yourself all the time. Wouldn't you be pretty familiar with your own perspective? In a word, no. The process by which we construct our stories about the world often happens so fast and so automatically that we're not even aware of all the influence, all that influences our views. Our political views, whatever they are, have been shaped and authored in conscious and unconscious ways. None of us was born with a political stance. Those have all been formed in us over a lifetime. We author our own stories, in a sense, but there are also countless other authors to our story. People who have spoken into our political views, our parents and our teachers and our friends and our news sources. All of those voices have had a part in shaping who we are and what we believe and what we then therefore bring to these conversations. And I think part of the tension that we feel in these difficult conversations is that in the conversation, our story collides with someone else's story and it can feel like we are being attacked or they could feel like they are being attacked. Stone says it this way, in the normal course of things, we don't notice the ways in which our story of the world is different from other people's. But difficult conversations arise at precisely those points where important parts of our story collide with another person's story. We assume the collision is because of how the other person is. And they assume it's because of how we are. Stone's book that we're recommending is really good. And as followers of Christ, we can certainly uh, grow and, and come to have a greater understanding of, of the psychology of story and how the, the stories collide with one another. But as followers of Christ, we have also another much deeper resource to draw on about our story. We have a whole different story, and it's actually our central story. But do we know it? One of the primary themes in Paul's writing throughout the New Testament, is that we, as followers of Christ, our primary citizenship as followers of Christ is in the kingdom of God. We may be residents on earth in Corinth or Jerusalem or Philippi or Galatia or America, but our citizenship is with Christ in the kingdom of God. When Paul describes the church in so much of his writings, his description is like that of a colony. A colony of the kingdom of God, a colony of heaven, a colony that has a distinct and alternative politic where God is king. 
Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon, in their book, Resident Aliens, which is wonderful, say it this way. We believe that the designation of the church as a colony, that Christians as resident aliens are not too strong for the modern American church. Indeed, we believe it is the nature of the church at any time and in any situation to be a colony. The church is a colony, an island of one culture in the middle of another. Our citizenship is transferred from one dominion to another. And we become, in whatever culture we find ourselves, resident aliens. And here, in these letters to the Corinthians, Paul is saying that the purpose of this strange colony of Christians that exists right there in the middle of this pagan city is to be ambassadors of God. Exemplars of what it means to live in God's kingdom, like a city on a hill, a colony, an outpost of a whole different kingdom in the midst of this world. And for Paul, one of the key elements of the success of that colony is the colony's ability to remain united. And so therefore, one of the greatest barriers is division. And these letters of First and Second Corinthians are all about the church maintaining their unity and not dividing up into different parties and camps of thought. Chris is going to go into more detail in this chapter next week, but I want you to, to invite you to turn uh, to First Corinthians chapter 1. It's the opening uh, of this story, of this book. Paul introduces himself in a very typical first century greeting, and then he reminds his audience of who God has called them to be. But then in verse 10, the tone changes very abruptly. First Corinthians 1, starting in verse 10. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather be of one mind, unified in thought and purpose. Paul appeals to them using this family language as brothers and sisters. And he says, let there be no divisions in the church. The term that he uses for divisions is schismata, which sounds a lot like our word schisms, but it actually means something more like uh, different cliques or different parties of belief. And he says, let them not have any of those sort of cliques or different parties among you. Next verse. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. There's that family term again. Some of you were saying, I, follow, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos or I follow Peter or I follow only Christ. Word had reached Paul that there were quarrels that were dividing the church. Now, we hear quarrels, and I think it's easy to hear kind of like childish bickering, which my kids did all week on vacation. <laughs> and, like, it's not that big of a deal, right? But for Paul, it's a huge deal. He writes in a different book in Galatians, in the letter to the Galatians. He says this in chapter 5. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, Quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division. Paul puts quarreling and dissension and division right there on the list with sexual immorality and idolatry and even sorcery. For Paul, this is a huge deal and it has impacted the church and the ministry of the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth had apparently divided into different parties. Some following Paul, some Apollos, some Peter, and some following the I only follow Christ party. Notice that Paul doesn't attack or critique any of the parties themselves. His problem is that the parties exist at all. Notice also that Paul doesn't even, even exempt those who are part of the I follow Paul party. You'd think he'd like that party. But no, all of it's a problem for Paul because the parties themselves represent division, represent 
partisanship within the church. They're fighting. They're infighting. And it's impacting their ministry. Verse 13. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. I think it's interesting that Paul doesn't even exempt the I follow only Christ party. I mean, isn't Paul's whole point that the church should all be in the I follow Christ only party? But here, he's chastising them as well. Why? Well, I think at least in part it's because they too have been involved in division. They too have allowed this quarreling to happen. They too, even if they're right, are part of the problem. All of them are culpable because all of them have allowed their unity to be compromised and have opted to form different parties, different camps. And then Paul spends basically the rest of 1 Corinthians basically walking chapter by chapter through issue after issue after issue, giving them direction and teaching them truth, teaching them what they should believe and how they should act with one another. But one of the core messages that runs through all of the book is that the people of the church need to put the needs of others ahead of their own needs, ahead of their own rights. Throughout Lent, we've encouraged you to read through the books of First and Second Corinthians. And if you have, you will see that that theme runs throughout both books. In fact, throughout all of Paul's writing in the New Testament, you see Paul again and again and again speaking of his own rights. His rights as an apostle. His rights as a Roman citizen. His rights as their spiritual father. His rights as a Pharisee among Pharisees. His right to get paid. But then time and time again, you see Paul choosing not to exercise those rights. To instead submit his rights for the good of the church, for the good of others, for the good of the mission of the kingdom of God. And time and time again, you see Paul pointing to Christ and saying that Christ submitted his rights, his divine rights, in order to reconcile the world to himself. As Paul is saying, see how he did it? That's what I'm doing. And then time and time again, Paul says, imitate me. Is I imitate Christ. There's a passage in one of these divisions in chapter 10 that I want to point to because it illustrates so well and sums up so much of the message of these two books. In chapter 10, Paul is addressing the church over one of these issues that's divided them. It's the issue of who has the right to eat what and with whom. And it's dividing the church, okay? Paul gives some input about what's clean and what's not and some practical how-tos on navigating dietary laws. But even in that, the primary emphasis is on unity. And on the witness of the church not being compromised, he writes these words, chapter 10, verse, starting in verse 23. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. He takes this language of rights. I can do anything. And he turns it. He says, yes, you have that right, but don't. Exercise it for your own good. Exercise it for the good of others. Submit it for the good of others. Continuing in verse 25. So you may eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If someone who isn't a believer asks you to come to dinner, accept the invitation if you want to. Eat whatever's offered to you without raising questions of conscience. But suppose someone tells you this meat was offered to an idol. Don't eat it out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you. It might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for the other person. For why should my freedom be limited by what someone else thinks? If I could thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I be condemned for eating it? 
Again, Paul is asserting, I have the right. You have the right. But then he says, lay it down. Submit that right for the good, for the sake of the other person. Whether that person is a Jew, whether that person is a Gentile, whether they're a believer or a pagan. Paul continues, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't give offense to the Jews or the Gentiles or the church of God. I, too, try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what's best for me. I do what's best for others so that many may be saved. I do what's best for others so that many may be saved. And then the very next verse, Paul says this. And you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. This is Paul authoring the story of the church in Corinth. He's saying, this is now your story. You are a new creation, and this is your primary story. And if we are followers of Christ, then Paul is authoring our story to our primary story. Are we allowing that story to become our story? The story that shapes how we think and how we talk about our rights. The story that shapes how we think and how we talk about the politics of this world. The story that says, while we may live in America, our primary citizenship is in the colony of heaven. Where our rights are not something we fight for. They're something we submit for the good of others. Because according to Paul, that's our story. And we must seek to know our story. But Paul is just one author of our story. We have lots of other authors, right? I mean, our forefathers of our nation, our parents, our friends, our news radio and social media, they're all trying to author our story. Perhaps one of the reasons it's important to take the time to reflect on your own story, to to do the work of figuring out how has my story been formed in me? I know I believe this, but I'm not sure why. One of the reasons it's important to do that is to identify the voices and experience that have shaped us so we might recognize we can choose to determine the authors of our story. Let me say that again. We can choose to determine the authors of our story. Yes, in part, that's choosing to make sure that Scripture and the Word of God is shaping us and speaking into our story. But I think it also means limiting the other voices or at least choosing wisely who we allow to be authors in our story. If you constantly fill your mind with voices from the political left or the political right, be it news radio or social media or 24-hour news channels, you're allowing other people to write your story, to determine your beliefs. It's why during Lent, we've suggested that one of the ways you consider fasting is to do a fast from the news, to do a fast from social media. As we said last week in the small church discussion guide, if something really important happens, you'll find out about it. <laughs> Maybe even from a real person. <laughs> to intentionally take a break. To push pause on these voices. And then at the end of Lent, you know, as you end your fast, be very careful what voices you reintroduce into your diet. Be selective. We can choose to determine the authors of our story. So yes, we need to better understand our own story if we want to engage in healthy reconciliation with others. But ours is not the only story. We also have to seek to understand the story of others, the stories of others. How many of you watched the show back when it was on Lost? Anybody remember Lost, right? And there's this group of people on the other side of the island. What were they called? 
the others, right? And we didn't really know where they came from. We didn't know what they believed. We knew very little about them, but we knew they were a threat and they were weird. Perhaps that's a bit exaggerated, but that's what we tend to do to people in our lives who happen to hold different political views than us. Chris in week one said it's the act of othering others. It's taking people who don't believe all the same things that we do and making them a faceless enemy. And I think we tend to think that the others exist outside the church. But the truth is, within the church, there's a broad range of political positions. In this room, there are a broad range of political positions. And we work very hard to pretend that's not true. (laughs) But then you have an experience like we had at our small church where suddenly someone says something and you go, Oh, no. We don't all believe the same thing on this issue. And it gets really uncomfortable really fast. Like, I had no idea there were others in our midst. (laughs) They are. And, And when we encounter that, their story and our story collide. And assumptions begin to be made about the other person. And then they'd say something or they do something that confirms our suspicions. Like, well, of course you think that because you're a... Insert label, you're a Trump voter, or you're a liberal, or you watch Fox News, or you listen to NPR. Insert whatever that label is. Dennis Green, the former coach of the Vikings, once said, they are who we thought they were. (laughs) Maybe his most famous quote. What a bummer, right? (laughs) But the truth is, we look for ways to confirm that the others are who we thought they were. And then they say something or they do something that sounds kind of political. And we send up these warning flares that it's time to either defend ourselves or counterattack. These little code words that can kind of set us off. What if instead of looking for proof that the people around us are others, we instead begin to look for ways to better understand the others, to understand the gap that exists between us, to find common ground that can help us to begin to build bridges of reconciliation. Again, Stone says, the key, is to lear- the key is learning to describe the gap or difference between your story and the other person's story. Whatever else you may think or feel, you can at least agree that you and the other person see things differently. Common ground. I love this phrase. Acknowledging is not agreeing. Acknowledging that there's a gap doesn't mean you agree with them. Acknowledging that they have a different story than yours doesn't in any way diminish your story. It's still yours. It doesn't threaten your story. It still has all the power it's had. One helpful tool that Stone suggests, there's a place to write this in your notes. He says, replace I understand with the phrase help me understand. Often in these conversations we say, I understand, I understand. But what people hear when we say that is, no, no, I get it, I get it. Or, or worse, like, oh, I know all kinds of people like you. <laughs> right? But when we say, help me understand. We, we demonstrate an actual genuine curiosity. We demonstrate that we truly want to know them and understand their story with their perspective, where they're coming from, even if we don't agree with it. The gold standard here, according to Stone, is working for mutual understanding, not mutual agreement necessarily, but a better understanding of each other's, of each of your stories so that you can make an informed decisions alone or together about what to do next. I think it's also helpful in these conversations to remember what all of us know in our mind, but all of us forget to ever bring to those conversations. And that is the fact that we can't change other people. 
Trying to argue with people almost never results in healthy change. In fact, more often, it ends up further pushing people apart, further polarizing the relationship. I mean, your liberal friend hasn't been able to move you an inch towards their beliefs, right? Or your conservative friend hasn't convinced you of anything other than that you should defriend them on Facebook. Trying to change people doesn't work. Stone says it this way. There's nothing wrong with hoping for change. The urge for change in others is universal. The paradox is that trying to change someone rarely results in change. On the other hand, engaging someone in a conversation where mutual learning is the goal often results in change. Why? Because when we set out to change someone, we're more likely to argue with and attack their story and less likely to listen. This approach increases the likelihood that they'll feel defensive rather than open to learning something new. They're more likely to change if they think we understand them, and if they feel heard and respected. I love this last phrase. They're more likely to change if they feel free not to. Is that our stance when we're talking with our parents, with our friends, with our coworkers, with people here in the church? Or we're seeking to understand them, not necessarily change them. I love this stone book. There's a lot in there. You should read it. But again, as followers of Christ, we have a bigger story. We want to learn more than just how to be civil in our political conversations. That's far too low a bar. Paul didn't write, God through Jesus Christ was polite to us and has given us a ministry of politeness. Reconciliation goes so far beyond just go along to get along. The challenges we face, the issues we face are so much bigger than that. So the answers must be two. Learning good conversation techniques is really valuable and really important. But learning to resolve an issue isn't the same as learning to reconcile a relationship. We may come to a resolution on the issue, but have we reconciled the players involved? Or did we simply win the battle? Being right on an issue isn't enough, even if your party wins. In fact, Paul knew this. Paul clearly wrote this. Paul, after spending chapter after chapter after chapter of teaching them what is right, how they should think, how they should act, what they should believe, even after all that, he says, you know what? I could be right in all this. I could be righter than anybody. But there's more than that. Let's start reading in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 31. But now let me show you a way of life that's best of all. And then Paul writes these words that we typically hear in wedding ceremonies. And while they make a beautiful wedding poem, maybe they were in your wedding, that's not what Paul intended at all. These words are not just for a marriage. These words are for all relationships. This is the pattern. This is the way of life. This is Paul's pattern for dealing with divisive issues. Paul's standard for difficult conversations. This is Paul's constitution for the new colony of how they are to live. This is the preamble for the church forming a more perfect union. This is Paul's Bill of Rights for what it meant to be the colony of God in a pagan city, a strange and beautiful city on a hill, showing what it looks like when God's people live in this world. Starting in chapter 13, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but I didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I'd be nothing. If I gave up everything to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I'd gain nothing. 
if you've read through First and Second Corinthians, you'll recognize these aren't just some random lists that he's saying. These are the very issues that was divi- that were dividing them. They were fighting over which gift was better. What does prophecy for? How do you use it? How do we care for the poor? These are the very issues that he's fighting for. They're fighting for, and he says, you know what? I can be better than any of you at these things. But I would gain nothing if I don't have love. I would gain nothing for myself, but even more importantly, gain nothing for the mission of God. Paul is saying, I may have won the battle at that point, but I lost the war. If I didn't have love for the people in the fight. If I had chosen to contribute to the quarrels, if I took a side, if I formed a schismata. If I didn't love others, whether they're in the church or in the world. And that message is for us as well in our political world. That we must love people. But that's crazy, you say. I mean, they're wrong. They don't care about the most important issues in politics. They're wrong on the issues of the right to life versus the right to reproductive rights. They're wrong on the issue of who has the right to get married. They're wrong on the issue of whether black lives matter or blue lives matter or all lives matter. They're wrong and the stakes are too high. Love is naive. What would it even look like in those incredibly divisive contexts to let love be the standard? Well, Paul says what it would look like in their context. And we can apply it to ours. Listen to these words and listen to them with our politics in mind. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith. It's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. You can't change other people, but you can love other people by doing this work of knowing and understanding your own story. Of knowing and understanding the stories of the others in your life and then having the courage and the grace and the humility And the love to actually engage them, engage them in conversation, not to change them, but to begin to understand the gaps that exist between you and begin to find common ground on which the foundations of bridges can begin to be built. Let me pray for us. Father God, you have given us so much in your word, this picture that that we are saved not as individuals, but as a community. We are saved not out of this world, but into this world so that we might demonstrate to this world what salvation looks like, what your character looks like in the way that we love one another. And yet, God, we acknowledge that there are so many voices shaping how we see ourselves, how we understand our own story, how we put gaps in between us and the people in our lives. God, we repent of that and ask you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to be working in us, giving us a love that goes beyond our capacity, that goes beyond our beliefs, that goes beyond our ability to love, so we might engage this world in ways that are constructive, so we might engage others in this place who have different views than we do, so that no divisions might exist in us, so that there'd be nothing but the picture of your church loving each other radically. That people might see the the picture that Caitlin gave us last week of of this family that is so full of love and joy and happiness together. So much love and, and, and support for one another, God, that they would want to be a part of that. 
God, for the ways that we have allowed our politics, our beliefs to, to cause divisions in us, divisions with other Christians, God, we, we repent. We ask for forgiveness. We ask for restoration. We ask that you would help us figure out how to navigate these things. These issues that matter, these are huge issues, and there are rights, and there are wrongs, and there are all kinds of things that need to be addressed, God. Help us to do it in a way that honors you, that honors your story. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.